This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Practical Possibilities, a segment of Dragon Mind brought to you by Incendium D&D. In this segment, we'll be diving into the concrete mechanics of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, analyzing its different options, and giving recommendations for new and veteran players alike. In today's episode, Ian and I analyze the Druid, a shape-shifting character class that excels at battlefield support and control. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and we're here for another Practical Possibilities. Uh, This time, we're going to be breaking down the Druid, Um, and the reason we're doing this is actually by request. Um, We had somebody ask if we could tackle Druid next in our analysis of 5th edition's core classes. Um, The way we had been going about it was starting with what I think are the simpler classes, but also covering a variety of roles. Otherwise, we would be basically spending the first half of classes talking about all the marshals and then the last half talking about all the spellcasters. But actually, I feel like we're going to be breaking that trend today with Druid because I don't know about you, Ian, but simple was never a word that I associated with the Druid class. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on with Druid that... um I uh, like I barely even scratched the surface of it in my own analysis. Uh, It's just it's got like so many interesting features. There's a lot of subclass features, but um, it also I I think in some cases uh, can suffer from like a little bit of uh, action economy uh, issues where you might have like too many options. Not quite so many as uh, the monk where you have all those different bonus actions and not even enough key to use it with. Um, but, uh, it definitely can feel a little bit more complicated for a first time user. I actually have a brand new player who is actually two brand new players. Now that I think about it, who are playing Druid and, um, you know, I just built some level three characters for them and already I could see, Hmm, this is going to be a little tricky, uh, because even though Druid lines up mechanically with what they are interested in playing, it's just got uh, a few too many possibilities, I think, for brand new players to to handle efficiently. And the key word there is efficiently. I'm not saying you can't play it. It's just what's the right option at the right time. Uh, like I have one uh, one druid player who's playing Circle of the Stars, and they are you know using their starry form, and that's basically what they did for most of the combat. Um, and, and unfortunately they missed a whole bunch of times. Uh, but then I have another druid who's, uh, a wildfire spirit druid and they, you know, summon their wildfire spirit, but that's like a whole other stat block to, to keep track of as well. So I tried to take the load off them and say, Hey, I'll, I'll keep an eye out here for you. Just tell me what you want them to do. Um, but it, it, it can be a lot. It can be a little overwhelming, uh, especially when even, even just like with wild shape. But we'll get into that. Yeah, no, I we usually have a who we recommend this class for, and we'll do that as a separate bullet point in just a little bit. But I do want to say right out of the gate, having played D&D very regularly for like six years now and 
having taught dozens of new players the game and watching which classes are easy to pick up and which classes are a little tougher, I will say as a general rule, I have a hard time recommending Druid for new players, even if it fulfills a concept that the player is excited about, because it really does come to stat block management. You can kind of get stat block management with a few other classes. So like, you know, creation bard, um, any of the new summon spells from Tasha's, but druids even in their player's handbook form with wild shape not only understanding how to work a monster stat block and just looking at it because it is formatted differently enough that it can be confusing um but also choosing which stat block is appropriate for the function that you want can be really draining really taxing for a new player to try to figure out that being said i think druid is one of my favorite classes at one point I would have said it was my favorite but I think that stylistically it matches best to an experienced player especially if they're not there to hog the spotlight if they're there to make sure that everybody else in the party is successful which can kind of clash with what a lot of people want out of D&D. But anyway, Ian, what's your uh, what are your experiences with Druid so far? Generally speaking, my experience with Druid has just always been peripheral. Uh, I played with some Druids like yourself, John, and I've also DM'd for some Druids. Um, but I've never really gotten the chance to play one myself, which I think is, you know, it's a key uh, thing that's missing from my experience as a player of D&D, uh, getting to play every single class in the game. Uh, as I said, I, I've built druids for some uh, some people based on what I would like to try myself one day, Wildfire and Circle of Stars. Um, my understanding is that druids are one of the better support classes in the game, uh, thanks to their spells such as Healing Spirit and Healing Word. Um, but they also can pivot into control uh, for the battlefield and, and actually set up their allies very well. Uh, conceptually, druids have a lot of baggage attached to their class name, uh, particularly in Celtic history. Um, but I do think that 5th edition has done a pretty good job of maintaining a uniquely primal feeling surrounding their magic. Uh, Wild Shape is an interesting solution to this. Uh, even if in practice, uh, most druids, at least optimizing druids, I should say, uh, don't really consider it strong enough to be viable for combat builds, at least until like higher levels. Um, I think that it's up to players to really express the story of their druid to get the most out of the class. Uh, kind of like how I feel about Warlock. I think that like a lot of druids can kind of feel similar just because of their spell list and wild shape that ties them all together. But uh, I, I think you're going to have the most fun playing a druid if you have a really good idea in mind of how you're going to flavor those different spells. Yeah, I will say that from experience, Wild Shape, like you said, in general, isn't the best combat option at low levels. Like if you're like a level two or a level three druid and you can shift into a brown bear, it can be helpful then. I will say that Moon Druid is like one of the most powerful just characters in the game. Treant Monk did a breakdown of uh, of all the classes in the game and it, Moon Druid was one of the S tier ones. So 
I think in the right context, Wild Shape is amazing. And again, to make the most of it, you have to have a really strong grasp of the game's mechanics and the ability to select the right stat block for what you want to go for. But yeah, I, I do. The the one thing I can say about Druid is the chassis is so strong that there's not really a quote unquote bad subclass. You know, a lot of times we break down a, a trap subclass and I, I we are going to have one later, but in terms of just like, if you want to build a druid and have it do druid things, there's not a subclass that you're going to pick where your character is going to feel ineffective, at least if you play to what the druid class's strengths are. Moving on to the druid's role in the party, I think from my experience having played next to clerics and wizards and all the different spellcasters, I think druid is a top tier control character, excellent at support and healing. A lot of times wizards are pointed out for their area of effect damage and all of their wall spells. But what Druid has going for it are a lot of these battlefield difficult terrain creating spells like entangle, spike growth, plant growth isn't really difficult terrain, but it might as well be. There's all of these really kind of big battlefield changing effects that by themselves can really just change the entire dynamic of a fight. Even some of the cantrips can have a really profound effect, uh, such as create bonfire, uh, where you like just point and bonfire happens and people who are standing there will get burnt. Yeah, they have mold earth as well, um, which as as we discovered, John, that one time that I played a wizard, uh, mold earth was like the easiest uh, thing to use to manipulate the the tunnels and uh, the dungeon that I was in. Uh, that was pretty fun. Um, and uh, Thorn Whip as well. You know, being able to pull people after hitting them with with that cantrip is is really useful. Um, yeah, they have they have a lot of really good, really good uh, spells to choose from. Yeah, and especially create bonfire and mold earth. If you're in a dungeon environment where there are tight corridors that may only be like five feet wide, those cantrips are very efficient at creating obstacles that change uh, an opponent's behavior. One of the things that I look for when it comes to control isn't only the active control of like forcing your opponent to do something, but it's also how different spells and features can change uh, an opponent's behavior and their analysis. So for example, what makes Fireball a great control spell in my opinion, isn't only that it has a 20 foot radius and it does 8d6 fire damage, but it's that once a unit has demonstrated its ability to cast Fireball, the other team is unlikely to want to cluster together. They're going to try to find ways to spread out so that the Fireball character can't efficiently damage all of them at the same time. Because of that, because they tend to want to spread out now, it can be easier to swarm individual units uh, to take them out one at a time. So... Part of the fun I find of combat tactical decision making in D&D isn't just the literal effect that happens, but also the kinds of changes in priorities and decisions that happens uh, over the course of combat. Just to give a personal anecdote, um, I think you were part of this session, Ian, where I was playing a character that had the plant growth spell. And what happened is we were in a forest environment and the DM had set up a counterparty. 
So we had eight players at the time. Uh, they had set up eight leveled PCs. And I don't know if they were the same level as us or even a little bit tougher. Um, but you could tell from the stat blocks, the armor class, the hit points, they weren't slouches. This was the set piece encounter of the evening. And I both feel a little bad about it, but also a little snarky about it. I opened up with plant growth, which basically meant that they couldn't move. It took so much movement to move just a little bit. And we had our party had so many ranged options. It was literally like shooting fish in a barrel. So my character's one plant growth spell basically shut the encounter down. I, I can see as a DM why it would be frustrating to have this entire set piece encounter planned only for your player characters to basically take away the entire challenge of the encounter. Oh boy, do I know that feeling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it can be, you know, pl player characters are really tough. Like, I know we're talking about Druid here, but a slight tangent. Uh, if you have like at least two control mages on your party, uh, it can be really difficult for um, uh, like a single BBEG or even a handful uh, to, to even get anywhere near to the point that they can actually deal damage uh, to the to the party members. It's just, I don't know, there's just something about it. Like it's just such a high level of efficiency when it comes to control spells that uh, really you're almost, as long as you can kite, which... For those who don't know, that's a uh, language for, uh, you know, moving away from the opponent and keeping them at a certain distance. Um, as long as you can kite, you really have nothing to fear. Um, and then, you know, of course, if you start disarming the enemy, that's when things get really interesting. <laughs> Low-key salty. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, it's just that I, I should say I learned a lot from that fight. Um, but yeah, like Druid, Druid's one of those, you know, they can they can really change the battlefield with any one of their spells. One of my favorites, of course, being uh Flaming Sphere, uh, that you can like ram the sphere into into an opponent as long as they're within 30 feet. I always thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and speaking of disarming, um, you know, I know that the encounter you were just referencing, uh, it was a bard that I was playing. But Druid and Bard, in this edition at least, have a lot of overlapping spells, and Druids also have access to Heat Metal, another excellent control spell. And the other side of their role, uh, besides being a control support healer, which is more the combat side of things, is that Druids are awesome for utility and wilderness exploration. A big part of that is their ability to wild shape. So even if you're not playing a moon druid, the ability to wild shape as a kind of recon unit um, can be really valuable. So maybe you wild shape into an owl or like a spider so you can climb up a wall or, you know, get to places that are difficult for medium sized party members to get. Or maybe you turn into a giant version of one of those things so that your party members can like, I don't know, ride you somewhere that normally they wouldn't be able to get to. So I do find that whereas wizards are great utility characters in terms of their rituals and in terms of some of their spell options, I do think that Wild Shape is a potentially very powerful, relatively cost-effective way of getting some very unique exploration possibilities. I'd like to, I'd like to shout out the Wild Shape into a spider option. 
Um, I think that one is like one of the best ones uh, I've ever, you know, heard of. Uh, I don't know exactly what the raw says about like that kind of a creature, but I know that you have a CR limit on your, uh, on your wild shape and a little tiny spider is almost certainly going to be under that CR limit. So uh, druids can actually almost become like, uh, like the rogue in terms of their stealth. Just because a spider, I mean, any, you know, even without looking at the stat block, just realistically, a spider is like almost never going to be seen by uh, by an enemy NPC. Um, except I, I will say, you know, I, I've seen on Critical Role, Matt Mercer uh, has uh, done some interesting um, challenges for druids who wild shape into spiders or, or something like that. Um, because uh, he'll say he'll say that the spider has to, you know, basically beat the perception check, and and if the guard rolls high enough, then they'll see it. That not that they'll try to kill it right away, but they might freak out a little bit. I remember one memorable scene where that happened, and it, it was quite it was quite funny. Um, but you know, it's uh, it, it's still really strong in terms of like stealth missions to consider small animals like that. Yeah, or even escaping. Just being able to wild shape into a creature with additional speeds, uh, there are certain like level prerequisites you have to meet before you turn into a swimming or a flying creature. But sometimes you just need more speed. Like you just need a speed of 40 or 50 or something. Uh, and with that, it can be easy now for a druid to escape an encounter if they get caught or something like that which could make for actually really interesting, frustrating villain. Now that I think of it, how many times do DMs get frustrated because their villains uh, try to escape and either the players have counterspell when they try to teleport out or they just don't have the speed to get away from player characters. Whereas, you know, you're in a dungeon environment and then uh, the enemy druid wild shapes into a tiny spider and then just crawls through a nook or cranny in the dungeon wall. I can see um, that being a really interesting, like low level enemy that maybe even grows with you. Or like if you're like shackled or something, uh, you could wild shape and uh, get out of those shackles by transforming into a smaller creature. I didn't even consider that until now. Uh, just because I was like, how would I rule it if my player characters tried to wild shape out of uh, constraints? Um, the question for me then becomes like, how would that also intermingle with like things like uh, plant growth and and entangle, um, uh, or or not entangle, but uh, spike growth and other things like that? You know, all those difficult terrain ones. If it's difficult terrain for you as a normal person, is it still difficult terrain for you as a as a rat, right, or something like that? So I'd have to I'd have to think about it. But yeah, there's a lot of like like I said at the start, there seems to be like a lot of uh, considerations when uh, using druid. So um, on to who we recommend druid for. Uh, to reiterate, if you're a brand new player, like you've never played D&D before, you don't know how actions, bonus actions, movement work, it's hard for me to recommend Druid in good faith because a lot of its most impactful moments are through other player characters. So it's like you as the Druid cast the Entangle spell and that restrains a target for the Paladin or Barbarian to hit. And then the paladin or barbarian do a lot of damage. But 
it can be kind of a thankless job if the other party members don't recognize like the way that you're setting them up. I will say that if you're interested in playing a shape-shifting character uh, to kind of play devil's advocate on my own point, um, I once had uh, a player tell me that her daughter loved uh, Moon Druid because she could freely change into a lot of different animals and that that shape-shifting fantasy was something that Druid helped helped her fulfill. Um, so I think if you're interested in the wild shaping, Druid obviously is a, is a good option. I think the other thing is that if you're really looking to dive into the nuances of spell selection and tactical combat, like you really want to do the research of looking at optimized spells and you want to really understand how to be successful in combat, I think Druid is a really strong candidate for learning kind of the the finer points of 5th edition's combat system. Just overall on the recommendations thing, I do know that, to speak personally, a lot of the characters that I started in D&D with were more damage dealer, weapon user type characters. So my first character was this messy fighter build, um, followed by uh, a rogue that I really liked, which was Solomon. Um, and then when I went into uh, another game where I knew that a lot of the other players had picked those weapons, damage dealing characters, I decided to try out Druid because I knew it had a really strong potential, but I hadn't really seen anyone make the most of it. And support became one of my favorite roles to fill um, because as a player who'd been playing for a little while, I could see the the change, like the metric change in how much overall like hits and damage my fellow party members were able to get. So, you know, it's one thing to have like a fighter and a barbarian that can make two attacks and hit for D12 damage or whatever. It's another thing to be able to entangle the enemy, watch them get advantage, have them hit more often, and then be able to get more critical hits and then get watch the joy of them getting to roll more dice because you set them up properly. I think there was an old adage or something that uh, the greatest gift is giving where, you know, making other people feel good, making other people feel happy can make you feel even better about yourself. Um, and I, I think that Druid kind of fills that role a little bit as, and, and, you know, I almost see that sometimes in, uh, how you play the NPC Druids in Gears, um, that they definitely seem to have that kind of like personality about them where it's, uh, it's kind of like they have their own quirks and their own like ambitions and goals and stuff, but they generally seem to be very peaceful and like generous, uh, I guess is the word. And I think that this can lend itself well to that kind of role play too. Uh, we didn't really talk too much about the role play aspect, but um, because of the supportive nature of the mechanics and the controlling nature of the mechanics, it can really lend itself well to that kind of uh, style where you're filling a you're filling a, a role in the party that can often be missing because everything is so violent. <laughs> so uh I, I like I like that about the druid. To move on to the mechanical strengths of the character, we've talked about it a little bit with the role, but first 
it has the best environmental control bar none. Um, having again played wizards, played other control characters, just the simple ways that it can change the environment to the party's favor are awesome. Another thing that I like as a fifth edition character class, again, to separate it from whatever one D&D is going to do, uh, the druid benefits from being a prepared spellcaster, meaning at the end of every long rest, they can re-prepare spells based on the situation they find themselves in. And especially if your table's style is more like, oh, we're going to go visit a dungeon. And let's say the style is you start scouting out the dungeon location now, as a druid, you can re-prepare spells that are going to be more appropriate to that dungeon. I do find, uh, in comparison to another prepared support spellcaster, the cleric, I find that the, the good cleric spells are really the good cleric spells. Like, you're not going to be like, ah, I won't need bless because the environment changed. Whereas for something like druid, you may find that if you're in one environment, call lightning is a really good option, but in another environment, not so much. I also like that the the spell casting options are broad and a lot of times one spell fulfills more than one function so again to shout out entangle because it's like one of my favorite spells in the game entangle not only creates difficult terrain it also targets strength saves and it also can impose the restrained condition so that one spell is control support and a potential damage booster like all in one so i just i really like how the druid spell list kind of fits the theme and like you said the generous feel of the character and you know again to reiterate it has the strongest i would say exploration options uh because of wild shape i know ranger has like the skill expertises in order to um like survival or nature in order to be a strong exploration character, but I do think that some of the mechanical ways that Druid can take advantage of its wild shape options, I do think that gives it like kind of a unique way to support the party's exploration efforts. Speaking of Entangle, uh, it just makes me think about like the different nuances of combat there that the Druid really presents. Not only do they present like good opportunities for the party to engage on the um, enemy but they also present really good spells for disengaging as well uh, like I'm thinking that you could use entangle first to start the fight and then if it's actually going south a little bit you could use uh, you could drop concentration and then use spike growth uh, as your party is retreating like you could prepare your spell and then cast it as the party as soon as the party uh, retreats and then uh, retreat yourself as well. Um, and doing that will allow you to like really, uh, you know, save the party in their time of need. Uh, a lot of like, you know, party members, uh, excuse me, a lot of parties don't really consider the fact that you might need to retreat from some combats. Um, and I think more DMs need to provide opportunities for them to explore that option uh, because it does have a lot of narrative uh, significance. Uh, and it can set up some really amazing uh, scenes later down the road. But I think if uh, if there's one character that has that kind of opportunity um, to to really disengage like that, it would probably be Druid. I agree. It's a really good point. Um, now, of course, uh, like anything, this class does have some weaknesses. 
The first I'm going to point out is actually damage output. As a support character, it doesn't have great damage options. Like I said, uh, the caveat here is we're not talking about Moon Druid. I know that Moon Druid and Wild Shaping as a Moon Druid, um, it's a very specific example. And it does have damage options. It's just if you're going to build a damage dealing character, Druid is not the place I would start. It's a well-rounded character. Um, the amount of times I finished off a, a big boss battle with Ice Knife, it still makes me laugh because that spell's so stupid. <laughs> but um, uh, just in terms of raw damage output, I just I don't see it as a, a strength of the character. I also think that Druid requires a lot of mechanical awareness and quick decision-making. Like you said, Ian, I think that its versatility is definitely a strength, but in terms of at the table play, uh, matching with certain personalities, I think it can be easy to get stuck in analysis paralysis of I want a wild shape, but which is my best stat block? And, you know, there I, I think there's like over 30 beast stat blocks in the game that even like a low level druid can pick from. So obviously there's like two or three of them that are helpful but if you don't have a player that's using a guide or anything to pick one of the the options that it's going to help um i think it's really easy for a, a druid player to get stuck if they aren't very clear on and very decisive about their mechanics another thing i find is that uh they can be very concentration heavy you know, like I said, Entangle is one of my favorite spells. Spike Growth is another one. Moonbeam. One of the things, though, is that even though these are all great options, they do require concentration. So you have to pick what's going to be the best option given the situation that I'm in. And when there's several good options to choose from, it can be hard to narrow it down and prioritize. And basically, once you pick an option, it's costly to try to change your mind later. So it makes that upfront decision making even more important. Um, and the last thing I'll mention is just that it has a potentially complex action economy. This goes back to the decision making, but druids don't get bonus actions all the time, but they do have several ways to use their bonus action. So if you're a moon druid, you can wild shape as a bonus action. Certain spells, like you mentioned earlier, healing word and healing spirit are both bonus action spells. Um, the Shepherd Druid, where you get to summon a spirit, um, uses a bonus action to summon the spirit. So I can definitely see cases where a Druid is trying to figure out, like, should I summon my spirit from Shepherd Druid or should I be healing wording? Like, what do I do with my bonus action? And then how does that also interact with my normal spell action? Because I can't healing word and entangle in the same turn. So I can definitely see a lot of the quirks of 5th edition's magic system making it confusing and potentially frustrating for like a new druid player to sort what, first of all, is going to be the best option. And second of all, how some options now interfere with other options and that that whole confusion. Yeah, it can kind of work against the druid in a lot of ways. Um, I figure since we're talking about it, I'd like to clarify what the raw says about bonus action spells and casting multiple spells per turn and stuff. So the way it works is if you cast any spell that has a time of a bonus action, you can only cast a cantrip after that. And the example that John reminded me of uh, is that shillelagh is a bonus action cantrip. 
you cannot cast uh, Fireball after using Shillelagh. You have to cast something like Firebolt or, you know, Thorn Whip or something like that. And that basically means that, you know, you kind of want to avoid casting bonus action spells unless you know it's going to be absolutely worth it. Um, Druid has some nice concentration spells that allow you to use your bonus action to recast the damage of those spells or recast the effect of those spells like Call Lightning or Moonbeam. Um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, bonus action spells can be a lot more costly than the action spell, which I feel is a little bit counterintuitive in a lot of ways. A good way to solve this, of course, is to take a level in Fighter <laughs> and get Action Surge. Uh, and you will be able to cast two action level spells in a turn. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. There's little sneaky ways to get out, uh, get around it. Honestly, I hope in one one D and D they kind of change how uh, bonus action spells work because it can be. It, I, I don't know. It just feels a little unforgiving. Well, and I think the action surge workaround to stick on this tangent for a second is the thing I find really frustrating about it. Because I understand the balance of if you're using uh, like a leveled spell as your bonus action, because there are some strong bonus action leveled spells like uh, spiritual weapon on the cleric list is really strong. Healing spirit is really strong. I understand them not wanting to combine these strong bonus action leveled spells with normal action leveled spells. But for action surge to just pick up two levels of fighter in order to break the rules of spellcasting, I, I think it's kind of silly. So as much as I'll harp on them about taking away the rogue's uh, reaction sneak attack <laughs> for 1D&D, I do hope for fighter that they'll clarify the rules for action surge a little bit more. Sugar, spice, and everything dice. These were the ingredients selected to create the most badass ladies in all of Arcandrum, each treated to a vision of the possible destruction that could befall the world if they did not stop it. Thus, the dream team was born. Crit Like a Girl is a cinematic podcast featuring the adventures of four strong women and an adorable little owl. Join us every other Monday and come see how we crit like a girl. So moving on to subclasses, uh, like I said, there aren't any really bad subclasses for Druid. I think that there are some that are stronger than others, but if anyone were to come to me and say, like, I want to play this kind of Druid, I, I wouldn't go like, eee, I wouldn't, you know, purple dragon knight, like, don't do that, <laughs> you know, or uh, what was the other one? The uh, battle rager barbarian, don't do that. But I find that if you are a beginner uh, or new to the Druid class, the, the two that I would recommend uh, would be Land, if you're looking more for spellcasting, or Moon, if you're looking for the shapeshifting. Um, I think Moon is more complicated, but a lot of times I find that new players, when they want to do the shapeshifting thing, they have something kind of particular in mind. So I, I just remember clearly like it was a, a new teenage player she came to me and, and she said, like, I want my character to be able to turn into a tiger. How do I do that? And Moon Druid was the answer. And that's all she wanted to be able to do. The, the rest of the class wasn't as interesting as in combat being able to shapeshift into a tiger and pounce on a bad guy. 
personally, I really like the land druid. I like the extra cantrip. I like the additional spells to cast. I have had an enormous amount of fun. I played a land druid level three through 20. Um, So in terms of like, if you're new to druid and you don't want all these complicated things, I do find that land is a great place to start. So I do think that if you want a more complex or interesting subclass, uh, Ian, you mentioned it earlier, I think Wildfire is a great one for that. For Wildfire specifically, the thing you have to know up front is that you do have a second unit to uh, control on the board that has its own separate stat block and its own separate features attached to it. That's the Wildfire Spirit. I also think that the additional wildfire spells are pretty good. They're not the greatest. I definitely wouldn't pick a wildfire druid just for its expanded spell list, but it adds enough versatility to the class that I think that, again, if you're looking to dive into the nuances of tactical combat and spell selection, wildfire druid is a great technical character to play um, that can keep things really interesting uh, if you're familiar with the game's mechanics. And then the last one, um, because we always have a trap subclass, I do think that just the way it's usually built, the trap subclass to me would be Dream. I've played a Dream Druid before. A lot of times people will be like, this is the healing one because they read Bomb of the Summer Court, which basically gives you some extra bonus action healing words-like feature (laughs) that's not really a healing word. So like we talked about with the bonus action spells thing, it kind of helps you get around that a little bit. I do find that if you're really interested in a strong healing druid, um, there are some multi-classing things we'll talk about in a second, um, but shepherd druid and the unicorn spirit is another really efficient way um, to make the most out of your healing spells. So with um with dream druid i think there are some neat ideas and i do love the the story of a druid that is attached to the feywild or is somehow an emissary of a fairy but i think that mechanically if i were to pick a subclass that doesn't really do what i think most people advertise it as dream would be kind of the trap one for me Yeah, I was reading through it a little bit uh, as you were talking and um, a lot of the a lot of the features here just don't seem quite as significant as other classes, like you said. Um, I think Walker and Dreams seems kind of neat. It seems like a very flavorful kind of uh, ability, but that's at 14th level. And I think Balm of the Summer Court is kind of neat and flavorful and it's at second level, but the ones in between aren't as just, just they aren't as impactful. Uh, I think, um, you know, Moonlight and Shadow, the Hearth of Moonlight and Shadow is only when you're resting. Um, and, you know, if your DM hand waves long rests or short rests or whatever, then uh, it's not going to be really playing an impact, right? It's assuming that your DM is going to have random encounters during your rest. Um, and it also... We also have hidden paths. Um, kind of cool. I really like it. And I it, it says you can only use it a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. I kind of wish, I mean, I don't I think dreams was before they started doing proficiency bonus stuff. I really kind of wish this was proficiency bonus. Uh, and it says you get all expended uses on a long rest. I mean, I can see why they'd need to balance it at least somehow because you get up to 60 feet or 30 feet of movement for yourself or an ally. Um, and it's, you know, it's good. It is definitely good. Um, 
and it's a bonus action but i don't know uh it just doesn't seem quite as good as the uh the first two things that i talked about yeah i find that for a lot of those xanathar subclasses more so than tasha's i feel like they're like very hit or miss <laughs> like either they're awesome or they're like yeah, i could take it or leave it so in terms of multi-classing viability, uh, I will say, you know, I'm a big multi-classing, uh, very interested in optimization. That doesn't mean I always optimize, but I like knowing my options. For the most part, I will say you're pretty safe if you want to just bring your druid to level 20. Um, it's what I did. I was very happy playing my level 20 uh, land druid. That being said, there are a few uh, multi-classes that tend to be pretty well-known, pretty popular when it comes to Druid. The first we actually talked about um, in one of the character build breakdowns, which is the Barbarian. So it's two levels of Druid, uh, Moon Druid, and a bunch of levels of Barbarian. And depending on your individual character, you can kind of play with the different level amounts uh, of the classes. So, you know, the one that was submitted to us was five levels of Druid, five levels of Barbarian. But um, I have seen other other like proportions work pretty well. The key thing here is that with uh, Wild Shape, as a Moon Druid, you can bonus action Wild Shape into a creature. If you're at least six levels of Moon Druid, you also get uh, magical attacks. And with Barbarian, you actually get to keep the rage feature. So you're making the most out of the physical power of your wild shape. And the, the rage is going to help add to it. So it's a Barbarian because a lot of times you would uh, wild shape into a kind of bear. And if you're a bear totem warrior Barbarian, you have uh, resistance to all damage except psychic. And the way Wild Shape works is that whatever creature you turn into, their hit points basically act as a buffer. So some of the bears have a, a good chunk of hit points that um, that will act as a buffer for your normal uh, druid hit points. And by adding that resistance on top of it, you're you're getting you're able to tank a lot of damage that even a normal bear totem probably wouldn't be able to. Uh, the other thing is if you're at least five levels of Barbarian, I looked this up, you get to maintain your extra attack. So if you do choose a stat block, like one of the big snakes that don't have multi-attack on their own, you can attack twice with your extra attack. So the combination of uh, of Bear Totem and Moon Druid, there's just a lot of very, very powerful uh, combinations you can get out of it. The other one that I see commonly is a one level dip in life or order domain cleric. So life cleric, because it has that level one feature where you get to add extra healing whenever you cast a healing spell that uses a level. So um, there's a trick where you use good berry with life domain cleric uh, to get a lot of healing um, <laughs> for a vi uh, relatively low cost. And Order Domain Cleric, just that, I've seen more and more builds with one level of Order Domain Cleric where, like, you healing ward somebody and then they just use their reaction and keep on smacking. So, because Cleric, uh, if you're using the rules as written, is also a Wisdom Spellcaster, you're not really losing out on splitting up your spellcasting to get it. Uh, and, you know, it's never a bad thing to be a druid that also has access to Bless or Shield of Faith or some of those other iconic cleric spells. 
so the last thing we we're going to talk about john was that um there's like a certain kind of world building in the player's handbook that uh dungeons and dragons assumes for druids um one thing i want to preface this with is that the player's handbook's descriptions of the classes and such they they tend to be archetypical for Faerun or the forgotten realms and uh, they these descriptions, they change based on what world you're playing in. And if you're in your own custom world, you can feel free to create your own lore for the druids. Um, the thing that I get the most from these, from, from what the world building says here, uh, is that, you know, not only are druids based on like a tie to nature and the bonds of the natural world and trying to um, live in harmony uh, with the world, but they are also like emissaries of balance, kind of like, which is kind of funny because we were talking about the the order cleric a second ago, um, where order is supposed to be kind of uh, balanced that way. But um, the druids aren't afraid of like chaos or anything or destruction or anything like that. It's more just that uh, they are, well, they're natural. They're naturalists, I guess you could say. Uh, they hate anything that's unnatural, like undead or aberrations. And I think that's pretty good. That's pretty useful for like, if you're a first time player and or, or first time Druid player, I should say, and you're looking for some inspiration, this can be really useful. But I, as I said at the start of the video, I do think that Druids as a whole have a lot of baggage in terms of uh, the cultural depiction of what a Druid would be like. The nature thing is certainly there, but from like history and my understanding of history, anybody can feel free to contradict me on this because um, I'm not a history major, but from what I understand about the archaeology and other things like that, um, Druids even had some connections to what we would associate with bards in D&D, &D, uh, which is funny that they overlap with their spells so much. Uh, this might be part of the reason why um, that they have this like, uh, I don't know, there's this like primordial like musical kind of thing going on with them as well that is invoking nature through incantation um based on based on what i've heard uh again anybody can correct me on this i think that while uh D, &D you know has some good mechanical solutions for what a, a druid might be like and the complex history behind it i do think that the way they portray druids specifically is specific to faerunian high fantasy and 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 you should really ask your dm what their druids are doing in their world absolutely one of the other things i wanted to really touch on because you know we really like looking at the archetype like you said a lot of the descriptions in the player's handbook are ar archetypal versus possibilities for your character because i do think that a lot of players only look at the options at face value um, instead of feeling like they have permission to reflavor things um, differently. One of the things that I always keyed in on on the Druid is that they're the only class that has a restriction of using metal armor. Um, that if you look at their proficiencies, it's like a Druid won't wear metal armor, which I always found kind of odd because the reasoning for that is that they don't want to use something unnatural. Like you said, that metal is somehow this unnatural thing that humans did to the earth. And yet they'll use like sickles and uh, short swords and stuff like they'll use metal weaponry, but they aren't allowed to use metal armor. I just found that fascinating. But uh, to your point, one of the, the articles of sage advice I remember reading, uh, the question was, you know, what happens if a druid wears metal armor? And 
it was a sarcastic answer of they'll just explode. Um, and they're like, you know, we're just kidding, obviously. But in the same way that a vegan isn't going to eat meat, you know, physically their body can, but there is an ethical concern over that. A druid has an ethical concern over wearing metal armor and that there's nothing game balance wise that would be affected by a druid wearing metal armor. So if you give them a chain shirt or something, there's nothing about that that's going to be unbalanced from a mechanical perspective. But I, I, I always found that interesting because they said, you know, you don't want to go against a lot of the world building your DM is trying to create. So I always find that interesting because the player's handbook is assuming that your DM would want druids to not wear metal armor because of this philosophical thing. And of all of the character classes that are in the game, druids are the only one where the archetypal assumption is reinforced by mechanics in this way. So it's not like clerics have something where it's like, well, because of their religious belief, they can't wield this kind of weapon or rangers, you know, because of something, some belief in nature, they can't, they, they won't use long swords or something. Druids are the only ones that apparently have this relationship with metal. And I just think that's an interesting thing to converse about because I feel like there should be guidance for DMs to add additional restrictions if it's appropriate to reinforce certain beliefs that um, exist in the world that they're creating. But also I found it interesting that there wasn't explicit permission in the player's handbook to also say, when we play D&D, we don't let druids wear metal, but perhaps your world is different. Um, it's like such a, you have to like go out of your way to find the sage advice article that gives DMs permission to counter the assumptions that are built into the PHB. I think that is an important uh, oversight that WotC has made when they created the 2014 Player's Handbook um, that a lot of people took for granted that the rules are like the rules and you can't really change them, even though the DM has the permission to change the rules in the first bit that the, the I mean, they don't say it in so many words. They say the DM is like the final say on adjudicating the rules. And I, I think that that is part of the you know reason they're trying to make some changes these days with um, later publications. Like I think in um, Tasha's or other books like that, supplements, they say in this world, this is what it is. In this world, that's what it is. Right. Like, what's it like in Eberron versus Dragonlance? And they'll talk about that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, the player's handbook is Forgotten Realms specific. And I just think it was an uh, it was an accident that uh, wasn't necessary to change uh, until the point at which they would be going to a new edition, because uh, even though it's not obvious in the book, you can kind of figure it out. And I guess Watsi just didn't feel like, you know, making a, an errata where they talk more about that kind of thing. It's kind of funny that you mention how uh, it's funny that the druids use sickles and short swords and all these other things, but they won't wear metal armor. Um, I, I I also see the, the hypocrisy in that. And uh, it makes me think, well, what kind of sword would they use or what kind of sickle would they use? It would have to be like stone or something like there's no other options. Uh, I mean, metal 
it's just the logic of it is kind of strange because metal itself is just a refinement of what the earth has in it right like you take a chunk of chunk of rock and you melt it down and and it just happens to separate into metals and stone uh, or dirt or whatever so i i don't think i i think it's just taking this you know, spread out kind of element and putting it all into one spot. But then again, I can also see the logic in that druids are supposed to be about balance, natural balance, and it's not balanced to concentrate power in one particular area. Uh, And that's why in the lore, it says that they're against the cults of elemental evil. I just think it's silly to have a mechanical restriction, even if the lore of it... Actually, I think it'd be even cooler to not have that mechanical restriction, but still keep the lore of saying that druids aren't really into using metal, because then you'd be wondering, why does my druid use metal, right? Why? What made them make this choice? Also, just having looked it up as you were as you were talking, um, apparently in past editions of D&D, and this is something I don't know because... Fifth edition was my first real edition. If a druid used to wear metal armor, they used to not be able to cast spells. And I think that's an interesting thing of going back to the lore thing you were saying, like maybe there's something about the world as it exists. Like you're somehow able to tap into the primal spirits of nature itself. And that by breaking it down into metal, um, you're almost because you're reshaping the spirit you're unable to tap into that spirit to be able to do your nature magic thing. That's a possibility. It's it's also funny that um, you have to consider then the terrain that they're in because metals do kind of, you know, aggregate in certain places. Uh, so what will they do if they're standing on like a, uh, you know, a black sand, a black sand beach? You know how uh, iron sand or whatever, whatever it is. Hold on. In Japan, they would use black sand or something to to get iron. So I'm wondering what they'll do if they're in that environment. Like, will they not be able to cast spells because they're not touching terra firma? And to me, that's a really fascinating exploration of like the made up rules in a fantasy world. That'd be a, a really interesting thing to explore. To go off of what you were also saying about, you know, why would my druid use metal? I also find that really interesting. So I play basically with myself. I have like a solo game that's ongoing that um, is moving through the different modules of fifth edition. You know, I I went through Lost Mine of Fandelver and uh, Curse of Strahd with my boy Solomon. Um, He survived everything. Uh, but one of the ones I'm, I'm really looking at now is Princes of the Apocalypse, where I have a a druid and an artificer working together to investigate what's happening with elemental cults. And one of the things that gets established very early on is the artificer and druid meet in a, in a tavern because they, and it's by coincidence, it's not like because they were assigned together and the artificer pegs the druid right away. You're a druid. It's interesting that you're here. And the druid says, well, I'm not a real druid because I don't go by any of this like metal restrictions. I'm I'm basically the errand boy they send when they don't want to risk losing one of their own. I'm enough of the circle that they're willing to put up with me. But in terms of like druid philosophy and ethics, I'm definitely an outcast. So it's an example of how there's this certain world building assumption 
but individual characters can challenge it. And I think that it's just as, if not more interesting to look at characters that challenge world building assumptions than just playing archetypes that are familiar. I think there's something really important there that we should like distill from what you said, that players should have the freedom to play by character archetypes and also challenge world assumptions when playing their character. I think that's I think that's what that is really coming down to because and and that's you know people will say that's about player agency it's about player freedom to create their character and stuff like that um what makes it but what makes that special though is that they are accepting that the world is a certain way and building their character around that whether it's to to contradict you know that world building or to embrace it that means they also have to come up with a compelling reason uh, to do those things. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, Shake It Up, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmorepodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Did you know that there are other tabletop games than Dungeons & Dragons? Well, my name is Gavin, and I'm the host of Playing Out of Character, an actual play podcast that showcases different indie game systems. We play all these indie tabletops using goofs and spooks to tell our stories. Arc 1 features an improvisational take on Urban Shadows. Next up is Shadows of the Demon Lord. If that piques your interest, look for Playing Out of Character, a Darkmoor podcast show on your favorite podcatcher.